Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist feminist sex positive podcast. Today we have Zoe, Laura, Ozzy, and Callan. And today, as you might have guessed, we are talking about the sex positivity movement. Yeah. Before we dive into all of that, I just wanted to share, make sure we're all on the same page about what sex positivity is. So Goody Howard, who's a sex educator, um, said this. My personal working definition of sex positivity is operating around the topics of human sexuality, health, and pleasure with respect and without shame or stigma. This includes gender identity, orientation, sex education, nudity, relationship styles, body positivity, safer sex, reproductive equity, and much more. And this comes from an article that also listed some examples of sex positivity, and that list included exploring your fantasies, enjoying the sensations in your body, communicating your sexual wants and needs to partners, prioritizing a healthy sex life and relationships, developing a positive relationship with your body and body image, setting healthy sexual boundaries with yourself and others, advocating for your own sexual health, using safer sex practices when needed, addressing unhealthy sexual patterns such as compulsive or impulsive behaviors, accepting the consensual sexual behavior of others rather than judging, supporting laws, policies, and norms that ensure consensual sexual freedom rather than unhealthy restriction or oppression, and finally, supporting comprehensive sex education in schools. Obviously, there is a whole history of the concept, and there's a sex-positive movement that has existed for decades, and we want to get into all of that today. So I think we're going to start with the history. Yeah. Yeah, so I wanted to get into the history of the sex-positivity movement. The term was originally coined by a psychoanalyst named Wilhelm Reich in the 1920s, who had this belief, which was considered very radical in psychology at the time. Um, which was that sex is actually good and healthy. Um, I just want to give a disclaimer that this is not to say that he's the first person to like think this. Um, Here at Season of the Bitch, we don't believe that cis white men have literally ever invented anything, but they are like original thought. (laughs) Yes, but this is how um, the the term was was coined um yes. into our, our lexicon but reich was actually like a pretty cool dude especially for a psychoanalyst so i wanted to talk a little bit more about him and his career he was a part of the austrian communist party you love to see it and in 1928 he founded the socialist society of sexual advice and research And in some ways, I would say our podcast is a socialist society of sexual advice and research. So So we have that in common. That is so true. Yes. Um, So he spent some time in the Soviet Union working with another well-known psychoanalyst um, who was also working on like themes of sex positivity at the time. Her name was Vera Schmidt, and she was working as a teacher in 1931, in part inspired by their work together, he published a book called Sexual Struggle of the Young. And that book advocated for sexual liberation of the youth by freeing them of the, quote, strict strict ethics that society pushes upon them. And the following year, he published another booklet called The Invasion of Compulsory Sexual Morality, in which he discussed how the moral traditions and expectations of society inhibit sexual explorations of the human mind. He then published a political booklet called The Mass Psychology of Fascism and Character Analysis, which shockingly Nazi Germany did not like so much. Um, They were like, this is a personal attack. And yes, it was. (laughs) Spoiler attack, it was. was. (laughs) Um, And Reich was exiled from Berlin, where he was living at the time. And he fled to Sweden and then Denmark and then to also Norway, where he became a professor. Reich was then expelled from the International Psychoanalytical Association for his, quote, unorthodox views. So, like, this man just kept getting kicked out of everywhere, basically. He wasn't exiled from the other countries, but he essentially kept getting jobs and then, like, needing to leave them because he was too radical. And they were like, sorry, no. Classic. Um, 
Yeah, and while he was in Oslo, he faced a propagandist campaign against him led by Nazi operatives in Norway, um, which was, he was the target of anti-Semitic campaigners who labeled him as a, quote, pornographic Jew. Um, Relatable. I feel like you could reclaim that title. Yeah, that's what I was just <laughs> I know, I'm like, I love that. Also, so he actually, he was like, his parents were Jewish. He wasn't raised Jewish, um, mm. so that's just interesting um because judaism is like one of the only religions where people for some reason think it's genetic like he wasn't a practicing jewish person right um but okay (laughs) so after that he moved to the u.s and he opened a research lab in maine and this was around 1939 so he utilized his lab for research of course he also treated patients there and he continued um, to organize against fighting the fascist regimes that were happening all over Europe at the time. In the U.S., he continued to publish controversial books, including The Function of Orgasm and The Sexual Revolution, which is like one of his most uh, well-known books. He also fought for availability of contraceptives because he wanted people to be able to enjoy the full range of sexual pleasure without any quote-unquote risks. Um, And he also thought that orgasms were so powerful that they they could help cure cancer. And so he did Mm. research with mice, um, which is just like super interesting to read about. So I would highly recommend looking him up, reading some of his work. Not all of it is um, accurate to what we know today, but it's still super interesting. Yeah. (laughs) So shout out to friend of the pod, Wilhelm. I mean, orgasms are powerful. They are. No, it was actually making me think about, this was a few years ago, um, I had been going, well, the acupuncturist I was seeing at the time who I'd been going to regularly, like, um, they, they always check your pulse in the beginning of acupuncture. And this one time I had like had sex right before I went to acupuncture and she was like, oh, your pulse is like a lot more balanced than usual. And I was like, <laughs> um, so yes. there you go. <laughs> yes. Wow. I love that. There's health benefits. So then it wasn't until the feminist sexual revolution starting in the 60s that the term sex positivity really became more a part of the mainstream feminist lexicon. During the sexual revolution, there was what is referred to as the sex wars and or the porn wars um, within mainstream feminism. And those terms are slightly different, but we're like very interconnected. And so the primary argument here was that being sex positive or pro-sex versus sex negative or anti-sex was the notion that porn and sex work at large is inherently violence against women um, or that sex in general was inherently violence against women. So many feminists, many feminists at the time also identified as pro-sex, but still anti-sex work or anti-sex porn, which is why the two things aren't entirely the same thing. or like entirely, which is why there's two different terms, but uh, they overlap a lot. And that of course, you know, does not fall into our definition of what it means to be sex positive. And we will talk more about that. So Gail Dines wrote um, in a pretty well-known book called Pornland that she was pro-sex, but still anti-porn sex. And she saw public and private sex as being entirely different acts. Um, Betty Dodson, who was a really um, well-known feminist porn creator, wrote in her essay, Porn Wars, that in order for women to progress, we must question all authority, be willing to challenge any rule aimed at controlling our sexual behavior, and avoid doing business as usual, thereby maintaining the status quo. Yeah. And so there was this group called Women Against Pornography, also known as WAP. Oh which gosh, is let's go. <laughs> literally so fucking funny um but that formed in the 80s and it was a means to combat what some women felt were like the evils of the sex industry and so betty dodson who i just mentioned said in regards to wap quote I had difficulty taking them seriously. After feminists had fought against censoring information about birth control, abortion, sexuality, lesbianism, the idea that there was now a group that wanted to censor pornography seemed absurd. And just to give some examples of like how widespread this, the stance against um, porn and sex work was and sex like positivity in general, um, Miss Ms. Magazine, which was founded by Gloria Steinem, um, p- contributed money to WAP. 
And the National Organization of Women, also referred to as NOW, also widely condemned pornography. And in the debate over whether sex was good or bad, quote, for women, many sex worker activists countered that is, if feminists wanted sisterhood, then the common goal should be sexual freedom and not the end of sex. So the anti-porn and anti-sex feminists um, often accuse sex-positive feminists of lacking a critical lens of the mainstream industry, which really is ironic because the need for sex positivity came out of this historical context of sexism, racism, heterosexism, classism, 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 et cetera, classism. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because the mainstream narrative of sex was and still often is um so often seen through like a cis het white man's framework that it's important to have a framework for viewing and talking about sex in a positive feminist way however there is often this idea that you have to see sex as being like only good and only positive in order to be sex positive which is not true and that is a lot of what we're going to be uh kind of talking about for the rest of the episode Yeah, definitely. I'm excited for us to unpack all of these things. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about this concept that they discuss in the book, Revolting Prostitutes, which we did a whole episode on a while ago. You ever heard of it? (laughs) You ever heard of it? Um, But this term called sex ambivalence. And yeah, so essentially is is the idea that sex can be just as much of a site of trauma or uneasy compromise as a site of joy and intimacy. And so really having more nuance around like what sex positivity means. Um, And yeah, so I'm going to read a quote that really gets at that lack of nuance. And they talk about it in the book in relation to sex work as well. Like, you know, it doesn't only need to be seen as like inherently this empowering, always positive, always good thing it's just it just like it is a job it is kind of a more nuanced thing some people find it empowering some people do not and that's really the nature of sex at large so true so this is a quote sex positive advocacy gained increased momentum in the early 2000s in part because blogging emerged during the george w bush administration while the u.s government was propagating cartoonishly bad politics around contraception, sex education, LGBTQ young people, and sexual health, liberal and feminist bloggers became particularly invested in producing non-judgmental information about sex and sexual health, and in defenses of pleasure, masturbation, queer sex, and sex outside of marriage. The increased accessibility and attractiveness of blogging technology made it possible to talk more openly about sex and pleasure. As a result, many sex working writers became embedded in a blogging culture that was perhaps rather too uncomplicatedly pro-sex and pro-pleasure. And so I think, I mean, it's important, right, that that spread of information is overall positive. It's good to have access to that information. It's more just what they're saying about like the lack of the lack of complication, the lack of nuance that that isn't the the only like view of sex or the only truth that there is about sex. Right. I feel like it's like sex has the potential to be this site of like liberation and joy and pleasure, but not that it always is that or has to be that. Yeah. Also, I just love when blogging is a significant part of something. So (laughs) good for blogging. Shout out to the sex bloggers. Yes. Early Tumblr. We love you. (laughs) um yeah i i have a lot of feelings about this (laughs) which we will get into um and i think so this is a whole a whole complicated thing so we're gonna break it down into a bunch of different areas and um mostly just talk about our experiences with this too um so yeah i've struggled with this a lot um I know these things have been discussed in episodes, um, in other episodes, but I do want to talk about how complicated um, sex can feel for someone with various traumas related to this very human activity. 
So if you're someone like me who grew up in a deeply repressive Catholic household where you were not only told that being straight was the only way, but also the demonization of any sexual feelings or thoughts, um, that alone makes sex a complicated thing. When all of your formative years um, have been spent hammering home a philosophy and you happen to be socialized or raised as a girl, you're trained to basically not have sexual thoughts. Obviously, that can't stop you from having sexual thoughts, but the way I had to retrain my brain is major. Um, right after I started college, aka right out, right after I got out from my parents' home, I was in a very abusive and coercive relationship that involved regular coercive and non-consensual sex for like four years. So... When you combine the religious trauma plus the emotional and physical trauma of abuse, and not to mention having an autoimmune disorder that directly impacts how your pelvic floor feels, um, sex becomes even more complicated. Then when you add in your own sexuality journey, which for me was something I really began focusing on about four years ago when I was 28, very late comparatively to most, I think that can like obfuscate things even further. I also want to say I don't even think that's that late. I feel like some people never go through like a full sexuality journey. Totally. No, and totally. Yeah. Right. And we're always just all queer people think they came out late. <laughs> I think yeah, like it's totally. Re- unless they came out really young. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think that I came out late. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, yeah, that okay. You didn't, but I still feel Sorry, like you know, people come out at like sixty. So, oh no, yeah, no, I agree that I don't think twenty-eight is very late. I right. was just saying I don't personally feel that I did either. Right, right. and I was out. I just hadn't been like exploring it to its fullest extent. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I think that's a shift. Anyway. Bear with me as I talk about astrology for a minute. So, like, even if you aren't an astrology person, I want to try to explain something. If you're not an astrology person, I don't know why you're listening to our <laughs> yeah, podcast. How, how did you end up here? <laughs> you should look into it. Anyway, um, so I'm an Aries sun, Scorpio moon, Scorpio rising. Um, and Aries and Scorpio are the two signs ruled by the planet Mars. And Mars is the planet most associated with sex. So when I first got into astrology, everything was like, you must be really sexual, must be really into sex. Every interaction you have is sexually charged, etc. So for me, as a very traumatized, chronically ill and semi-closeted human, I was confused by this reading of my major signs. I even thought for a while that I was like asexual. And it's possible that I could be categorized in the demisexual category, which we'll get more into. But for me, I don't know if it's actually that or if it's still like just these other traumatic effects that I've experienced. Because um, I consider myself someone who really loves sex. But I'm also at an age where I recognize that random sex is really never something that is fulfilling for me. Um, mostly because sex gets better with a partner the longer y'all can be together and figure out what's working for each of you. And I think for me, being with a partner who understands the things I've been to is been through is paramount. If someone isn't going to see the nonverbal cues I may give because trauma has made me a person who can go into freeze mode if I'm feeling threatened. Um, I'm also a person who may not be in the mood if I'm stressed or struggling with something else mental health wise. When I was in a long term relationship, my partner would feel really sad and rejected sometimes if they were interested in sex and I wasn't. So I want to talk about that potential dynamic specifically. Sex positivity to me is all about creating a safe space where you and whoever your sexual partner or partners are to discuss what you like and want in a sexual relationship. Now, again, as someone who grew up extremely Catholic, it was really difficult for me for a long time to even know what I wanted or know how to talk about it. Um, And as I always do, I highly recommend The Whole Lesbian Sex Book by Felice Newman. I also recommend How to Build a Sex Room on Netflix because it gives you an idea of the range that sex and kink exploration can have. 
and also the range of types of leather harness pillows that exist in the world. <laughs> which and also, we love to see. Oh, no, please. Also, also, just some of the couples on it are so funny. I it's personally, amazing. I love to roast the couples. Yeah, of course. In a sex positive way. It's of more just like there was this one guy on it. They were talking about. They always get interviewed in the beginning about like their sex life, if they're kinky, like what they're into, whatever. Mm -hmm. And this one guy was like, or I think it's a straight couple. The woman's like, I I don't think we're that spicy. And the man's like, we're like a bowl of clam chowder with like one, one, one dash of Tabasco. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's so funny. I watched all of it, but I don't even remember that. But that's, I don't (laughs) I feel like that may be in the first episode. No, it was like the second or third. I know because I like went back and recorded it and like sent it to my friend and was like, you have to watch this. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, but no, it's a good show. Would recommend. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just not necessarily being afraid. Like, I feel like I literally, the Catholic guilt of like Googling googling random things right googling how like even like how to figure out what you're into like throw that into google or whatever you know like don't be afraid like we're not at our parents house we're not like in 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 some type of like thing where there's someone judging that like it's good to learn about what those things are and if you haven't make it made an intentional choice to think about those things um you know, I think that sex positivity has like a lot to do with all of that too. So anyway, kind of getting back to what I was saying about like these, I I guess like for me again, like as I was saying, I'm someone who really enjoys sex. Sex is a really important part of relationships to me. I consider myself a sex positive person and I also have all these hangups. So if you aren't in the right headspace to have sex on a random Tuesday after you get home from work, maybe discuss with your partner ways they can help you get in the mood, even if it's on another day. Um, So I am someone who deals with a lot of pain. So I love asking for massages, foot massages, back massages, literally anything that helps my body feel okay. Um, Because my endometriosis might need some extra help getting to a sexual place, you know, talking about lube, talking about ways someone can help your body feel sexual are crucial to me, crucial for me. And I think um, talking about how sometimes it might not be something my body can do and it's not at all a reflection on my feelings for the other person. It's more about overcoming all these hangups I have had to deal with my whole life. And then, you know, don't even get me started on SSRIs, which obviously impacts us as well. All that to say, Being sex positive doesn't necessarily mean that you are positive you want to have sex all the time. It's more about feeling confident and comfortable in whatever way you are connected to sex and honoring and being with the authentic way you show up in the bedroom or roof or secret pool in the forest, etc. And talking about that with partners is really, really beautiful and fun. But yeah, I think we wanted to get into some other misconceptions and like things that are often left out of sort of the mainstream sex positivity movement. Um, So we have a quote from a longer message that someone sent us on Instagram um, as kind of a jumping off point for this. Quote, the girl boss liberal feminist sex positive movement told women that it is empowering to sexually use and discard people and to let them use you, unquote. Um, so I definitely have mm. thoughts about this. Mm-hmm. I think that I, in college, was very immersed in this type of world that this person is talking about. Um So one thing that comes to mind for me is just like when I was starting college, which was also basically when I was like, having sex and exploring my sexuality for the first time um there were all these think pieces from like older feminists like mostly kind of second wave feminist authors about like hookup culture and dating apps and how bad they were especially for women um and i think that some of those authors like had some points but like a lot of what they were saying just did not consider basically that hookup culture was just like how a lot of young people were dating and you can't really just like opt out of it and so it was frustrating to have people who 
weren't necessarily in this world basically just saying like this is bad and like specifically yeah. anti-feminist very but not offering energy. like yeah not really offering solutions or being like oh we should go back to like the 50s dating with a chaperone type of vibes which was also terrible so I feel like there were these like less mainstream feminist spaces where people were pointing out things like this like how dating in the U.S. has always been really terrible for women or really just anyone who's not like a cis straight white guy. Um, um, Ozzy, when when you're talking about the 50s when there's a chaperone, um, is that because you've been watching A League of Their Own? <laughs> it might be. Well, I guess actually that's the 40s, so I should say the right, 40s. Right, sure, but... sure, sure. But yes, um, um, another plug, please ex- check out yes. A League of Their Own. You have to, like... I'm going to have a lot of thoughts on this, and I think we might need to do an episode on it. I, I, totally I think it's one of the best pieces of it. queer media to come out in recent years. Yes, but I think, I mean, one thing I really like about it is that it does sort of, it's like people being able to be queer and like have non-normative sex, but also like you get to see what some of those parameters were like and mm-hmm. like what the what people had to work around in order to be able to do that. Be their authentic selves. Yeah. And again, coming back to, like, the queer truth that I think, you know, we all talk about a lot on this podcast of, like, figuring out what is true for you is important in many, many elements of your life. And whether it's, like, about your identity and, like, who you are as a person or, like, what you like in a sexual way, like, that's all very critical info yeah totally um but yeah i guess so you know that show is an example of how dating wasn't just like this magical great thing for queer people during that time either and like there are a lot of issues that don't really have to do with the specific way people are dating um but i guess like what I think one response that I had to this kind of like second wave feminist argument um, was basically just like hookup culture is actually great. There's nothing wrong with it. It's really empowering. Maybe it's even feminist. Um, And I mean, I don't really think that individual life choices are feminist in that type of way anymore, but Mm -hmm. I think it can be true that random hookups can be very empowering um like I am someone who enjoys like a one-off sexual encounter with someone or sex with people that I'm not necessarily romantically involved with um but I think the thing about hookup culture as like a I don't know way of moving through the world that can be very negative is like not communicating about it Mm -hmm. and I think something I've realized as I've gotten older and had more experience is like even if I'm just going to have sex with someone once and that's like, we know that from the jump, it's still very important to talk in some way about like what you both want. Um, And I think this is something for me that came a lot out of like queerness and transness and just thinking about like, not everyone likes to be touched. Yeah. Right. Like not everyone wants all parts of their body to be touched. And that's like something that can be really important to talk about before even like taking clothes off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think getting more comfortable having conversations like that because they can feel very awkward and horrifying when you first have to do it has made my sex life so much better because it's like sometimes someone is not going to be able to pick up on those nonverbal cues and like that could be a good reason not to have sex with someone if like Laura you were saying like if you're someone that knows you kind of need someone who can like have an eye out for those cues um another way around it is like literally talk about like I do not want xyz I do like this and like those types of things also can be hard to do with someone you don't know super well which I think is another reason why like one night stands can be not always the best site for like really fulfilling sex. Um, But I do think that there are tools that you can use basically just around communicating that can make those experiences a lot better. Um, I guess I just think that essentially like taking at face value, like hookup culture is inherently amazing and great and there's no issues with it and nothing that we need to fix um can just lead us to some very dark places which i think is kind of what this person is talking about in their instagram message to us 
Yeah. Yeah. I think also kind of the like arguments that you were getting at Ozzy go back to the lack of nuance of like having random hookups is either bad and harmful <laughs> or it's like great and empowering. Right. And it's like sometimes, I mean, in, in my early late teens, like early twenties, I had a lot of like one night stands hookups, whatever in college. And it's like, I don't really feel either way about them. I don't feel like I was so empowered. I also don't feel like it was like bad. I feel like it was completely fine. Um, which I don't know. Another thing I was thinking of with what you were just saying about like the fulfillingness is, I don't know. I think that's kind of something that is pushed by our society. And this is just something I'm thinking of on the spot. Like, I don't think all sex has to be like this incredibly fulfilling thing. Um, yeah. Sometimes I don't know what people mean when they say fulfilling. Like, do people mean like that means you're orgasming or do people mean something else? I can also have an orgasm. I know this is super like it completely depends person to person. I can have an orgasm and also be like, I don't want to do that again with that person. But like, thank you. Like, (laughs) yeah. Also, yeah. I don't. It's like sometimes sex is just something to do when you're bored or whatever. Like, it's not it does not have to be this transcendent. Right. And as long as it's like consensual, like that's fine, too. Right. If, like, that's what you both wanted. I don't know. Yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) I agree. I agree. And I know we're going to talk more about asexuality, but I want to, like, lead us into it by talking about demisexual whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Because I think that, again, this is something that shows up differently for a lot of people that I've spoken to. Because I am someone who has done a lot of random hookups, had, like, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I just, for me, it's always like a hundred percent more enjoyable after there's these other elements. Like I feel safe with them in in an emotional way or whatever. Um, that will inherently change things for me. And so I always am curious about like where's that line then for demisexuality? Because it's like if it is. a a better sexual experience for me once I have gotten to know people like is that part of that or is it is it something when people say they're demisexual does it mean or demisexual I feel like I keep saying it fucking weird Uh, yeah I'm like I don't even know how to demi is a weird I say demi but I don't know that it Matt I feel like either is fine yeah but I was actually thinking about that earlier just knowing we were going to talk about this because to what you're saying I feel like to an extent that's very common. I don't know if it's like true for everyone, like it varies, but that's like very common, like of an experience. Um, To enjoy sex more when you're spending more time with someone, you mean? Yeah, like what you were saying earlier, it's like, you know more about each other, you know what the person likes, you have more of a connection. Right. Um, Yeah. But I mean, I guess just like like it's a spectrum. Right. And and in some it's a, it's a spectrum for sure. And also, I do think as y'all were saying, part of it is a choice. Like we are all people who make a choice to have random sex sometimes. Um it is a choice. It's it's not necessarily a good one. It's not necessarily it's a, a bad one. It's <laughs> It's a it choice. Just, it it happened. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> We're clearly experts on sex positivity. (laughs) Well, yeah, sex positivity is also sometimes I just want to have sex. Right. I'm positive (laughs) I want to have it. I'm positive it may not be good. That's okay. (laughs) I'm positive it's going to, like, be fine. Because I also think, at least at the age I am now, I am pretty good, even with people I don't know that well, of being, like, this is what I would like you to do. Right. Or not, like, at, like giving direction so you know we love a dominant bottom (laughs) exactly so as long as it's like you know consensual we got here together it's usually like perfectly fine sex even if it's like a one-off or like a a two to three off let's say yeah yeah exactly that's a great way of putting it I yeah I mean this is also something that I've thought a lot about I think for similar reasons that like I mean for a long time I wondered if I was like asexual basically because I was not only attracted to men Mm -hmm. and like sometimes I would 
basically like before I hooked up with women at all or actually considered like putting my queerness into practice, I often would feel like something was kind of missing for me. And I didn't know if it was like queerness or basically being somewhere on the asexuality spectrum. I think like now for me, I lean more towards thinking that I'm not, but I do relate to like some aspects of the demisexual identity of like definitely having some type of emotional connection with Mm -hmm. someone is pretty necessary for me to enjoy sex, but it doesn't have to be like a deep connection. Like for me, that could include just like meeting someone at a bar, talking for a few hours, like them seeming chill and like, I don't know, like creating a nice emotional space for each other, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is often not what people mean when they specifically say that. Like they often mean that they want more of like a long-term friendship with someone before they would ever have sexual feelings and so Mm -hmm. that's basically why I don't necessarily like openly identify that way because I feel like it's not fully what people mean by it but I do think that it's like a (laughs) useful right and I think I think it's like a useful framework to just think about like where you might fall on that spectrum Mm -hmm. essentially or like to think about things that could be helpful for you even if you're not asexual just like things that might make sex feel better and like more comfortable for you um but I guess we had someone also specifically ask for us to talk about asexuality and the sex positive movement and I think this is something that I know like a lot of my friends who are ace or on the ace spectrum have struggled with because like especially in queer spaces I feel like a lot of pride and like sex positive type spaces focus a lot on like specifically having sex with other queer people as like the main way to be queer um and that can make some people feel excluded if they don't feel like that is what they want to be doing um or like right away you know whatever the case may be and i think it is really important to have space for like i mean this goes along with everything else we've been talking about but that like sex positivity also means respecting when people don't want to have sex um, and respecting that for yourself too. I think, Laura, you talked a little bit about SSRIs and that's something for me where when I started taking them, my sex drive really changed. And for a while, I just basically felt like I had a very low sex drive and didn't basically didn't really have interest in sex. Um, And I have like, you know, reworked some of my medication shit now. So that's not so much the case. It still like impacts my sex drive, but I really viewed it for a long time, like probably the first year or so as like a problem that I needed to fix. That Mm -hmm. was like something that was wrong with me. Um, And I think like, you know, there was some aspect of it that was just like feeling sad because sex is something I really enjoy. And it was like, oh, it's kind of sad that this like isn't the same as it was before. Right. Um, But I don't think it was helpful to view it as like, basically a thing that I need to fix. Um, Especially knowing that like, for most people, your sort of level of sex driver interest in sex will change a lot over your life. And it can be related to like, all different kinds of things, who you're with, whether you're in a relationship or not. Um, you know, whether you've experienced sexual trauma that's recent or like being brought up by something. Um, And all of those things are completely normal. And like, it's not, I don't know, it's not like unhealthy to not want to have sex. And I think that we think a lot about or like, I, I think and talk a lot about how it's important to like, allow yourself to desire sex and like, to have sex and to let that be a part of like a healthy life um, if that's something that you want. And I just think it's equally important to have the other side of it Mm -hmm. that it's like, it's also healthy and normal and good if you don't want to have sex to just not do that. Um, And I feel like we've talked about this pretty recently in previous episodes, but there are a lot of other things you can do with partners that can bring intimacy and closeness that are not sexual. A massage is a great example. Um, So I just think that, you know, that doesn't limit you from like having 
intimate relationships with people, even if it's not something that you're feeling at this moment in your life. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really think that there's also an element of this that does come into play with gender. <laughs> um, yes, just societally, absolutely. I feel like I've been in situations where, um, you know, like when I was in, in bad situations, it would be like a dude being like, I need this. It's um, it's something I need like as a man. Like that type of language is so normalized in our society of like um, men have needs. Um, those needs are related to sex and like if you refuse sex like the pain of blue balls or whatever the fuck like they're gonna like get blue balls and die yeah like no way they can possibly go jack try menstruating bitch (laughs) (laughs) and so i it's just like i think it's really important to think about those dynamics too and like how much we feel potentially pressured by these like kind of um low-level societal pressures that are all around us, um, if you happen to be someone particularly who has sex with men. Um, But I also, you know, think that obviously gender dynamics can play out in any queer relationship too, even if you both have similar or same gender identities. Um, I think that because we live in this society, there's just a lot of ways that that kind of narrative can come into play. And as Ozzy was saying, like, it's really important for both people to just, like, be open about what works for both of you. And also, like, if that means that one partner has a plan for masturbation or whatever it is, like, great. Like, that's fucking fine. Yeah, I think that actually goes really well. And so we kind of have one one other thing here from Instagram to talk about and that's very related to what you were just saying so this is from the same person as like the girl boss quote we read earlier but um i kind of separated it because i thought this was like a, a little bit of a different convo um so they wrote to talk about the presumption of sex in dating people pres- people assume that you will at some point have sex rather than finding out if you will have sex and having um ways of having a non-presumptive dialogue around sex with the person you want to do it with a, you want to do it with is important. People are asking, which is good, but consent is the bare minimum. Sometimes the question of when are we going to have sex can come across as objectifying. Mm. Um, so not like explicitly a question, but I thought something that would be interesting for us to talk about. Yeah. I feel like that's a really helpful thing to bring in also, because I think one thing that I'm thinking about with like what we've just been talking about is also like there are people that probably will not want to date or like have a romantic relationship with someone who does not want to have sex as regularly as they do or at all. Um, And I think like some of that can be worked through and there are like compromises, but I also think it's one of those things that's like a good thing to talk about early on and when you're seeing someone to figure out if you're compatible as partners or people who are dating hooking up whatever the situation is um and I feel like I don't know this is kind of like the stereotype of poly people I feel like but they're just like hello I would like to have sex with you but it's also fine if we don't but like just so you know or like I'd like us to be friends and just being very like almost like overly explicit about like, yes, I am sexually interested in you, but it's okay if we don't have sex, I still want to be friends. Um, But I do think there's like an element of that that's useful just in terms of like, I don't know, there's the whole like thing about people, like, I don't know, like, is this a date? Like this person asked me to hang out and I don't know if it's a date. Um, But I think even if you sort of know explicitly, like this is a date or this is like, a more romantic context there is like some potential of sex here still like not going into it assuming that is what's going to happen and viewing it more as like a potential thing that could happen if it's something you both want because I think that's like not just important in terms of asexuality but also kind of what you were talking about Laura with like this expectation that like 
women especially just have to agree to sex. Um, And I think there's also sort of a stereotype that like men always want sex. Mm -hmm. And so it's like weird if you don't. They're both harmful. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, I guess just like, I think, you know, you could like meet up with someone and realize over the course of the date, you actually don't want to have sex with them. And that ideally should not be a big deal or something that the other person is going to get upset about. It's kind of just part of life and a thing that happens. Um, and no one is owed sex from anyone else. So, yeah. 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 Not even just talking about sex. Like when I'm going on, um, first dates, especially with people that I have not already met in person, like from, from apps mm-hmm. and they mentioned from, like, the apps. from the apps and they mentioned kind of anything physical, like, Oh, like then we can cuddle or whatever. I feel really uncomfortable because I'm like, I literally haven't met you. I don't know that I like want you to touch me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's very fair. <laughs> Yeah, like that automatically, I'm like, I don't want to go on a date with you because I feel like you're already presuming that like, that already feels like a lack of like physical boundaries right. that you're assuming that you're touching me at the end of this date. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think it's a problem too, where like, straight men, especially are like, taught to attach a lot of their self-worth to how much sex they're having. And it's right. like, if someone doesn't want to have sex with you, that's like a rejection. It means there's something wrong with you as opposed to like, I mean, most of the time, whether or not I want to have sex has more to do with me than the other person. Obviously the other person's also important, such as if they're (laughs) creepy, then that's like not great. But I do think it's like something that we all could probably work on is like not not assuming that someone else's desire to have sex or not have sex is like a reflection of you or Mm -hmm. like your own sort of worth because that I think is a lot of times where like these really intense negative reactions come from because people feel rejected but it's like still not okay to put that on someone else or try to pressure someone else into sex because you're feeling rejected yeah I think also with apps it's like you can look at pictures of someone and and think that they're like objectively attractive but it's hard to know until you're in person together if like you what have the chemistry totally. and yeah. the vibe, yeah. like if you are like attracted to each other just because mm-hmm. like you are attractive. So I don't know. Right. I think that adds another layer to like the idea of rejection is like maybe you're just not vibing because right. it's a weird. I don't want to say weird. I've met plenty of people from apps, but it's yeah. like, uh, you know, it's a different way of meeting people. Like it you've is. never seen each other in person. You do not it know is. what's about it's to happen. unnatural. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I do. I also, I, yeah. Oh, I was ahead. just going to say, I feel like that expectation should be there that because you haven't met before, it's like, you have no idea what, if there's going to be chemistry or like, right. I think going into that, assuming sex is going to be the conclusion is weird. Yeah. Right. Well, and I'm like, how do you know you want to have sex with me? Like, you've never met me either. I could be really weird. (laughs) I mean, you are really weird, but that's why everyone should want to have sex with you, to be honest. Thank you. um, Yeah, I also want to mention, like, just (laughs) the concept of sex is different for different people, right? Like, you know, even if you have a person with a penis and a person with a vagina in this situation, P in V sex isn't necessarily like the way to go, right? Like I just want to say that for a multitude of reasons. Number one, if you're someone who has endometriosis or something similar, like sometimes like I, I know a lot of straight cis women who are in heterosexual relationships and they can't have um, penis and vagina sex. And I just think that like expanding what we think of as sex is also really important and acknowledging that even if you're in you know a kind of heteronormative relationship that doesn't mean you have to have heteronormative sex and I do think that kind of throwing out any rules as it relates to the scripts and what's kind of expected when it comes to sex is really important to having kind of like unlocking what you like and what you don't like in those kinds of situations yeah I feel like it's also like that meme that's like this is sex but it's like something that's not sex but I'm like 
sometimes that is sex. Like yeah. sometimes, I don't know, like taking a bite of ice cream at the same time is sex. Yeah. And that's valid. That's valid. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that. And that's that on that. Yeah. That's funny because I have like I was gonna say a joke. It's it's just a joke that I do to friends where if it. they text me something, I'll be like, that's a sext. I think I did it to Laura recently. Oh, I remember what it was. <laughs> but I did it also. My friend recently was like, I was like sad and um, my friend was like, I wish you were here, like watching Gilmore Girls drinking hot toddies. And I was like, this is a sext. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I forget what it was for me. I don't, I don't remember what you said, but I was like, that's sext. <laughs> so start telling your friends that. that they're sexting you. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yes. <laughs> Normalize sexting your friends. <laughs> I mean, we said this in early quarantine because of the sexy Sappho stuff, too. That's true. Sex to your friends. That's true. Help. I was going to say, I do also send Laura my, my loose, but Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can also make anything a sex, really. Consensually. Exactly. Yes. So true. We have established <laughs> this is okay for us. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yes. Anyway, well, this has been a really... Uh, illuminating conversation. And if you want to continue the conversation with us, you can join our discord, which you can do by giving us your money on patreon.com slash season of the bitch. You can rate review, subscribe on iTunes um, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at season of the B. Do it. Yeah. Like as you learned on this episode, we got some, questions and comments on Instagram for a lot of episodes. We get stuff either from Discord, Twitter, Instagram. We like to find out what y'all want us to talk about. Um, what else? You can email us seasonofthebe at gmail.com. Uh, we are still accepting applications to date Laura, uh, but you do have to submit your credit card information, social security number, and a, a scan of your passport um, or whatever identification you have. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have one that doesn't exclude you though don't worry <laughs> valid valid cover, the cover letter is required um yes that's the most important part you <laughs> need to know if the vibe is right okay yes you gotta pass a vibe check the vibe check is the coven reads your cover letter and decides and probably roast you mercilessly and if you pass you have passed you've passed everything in life you're like ready for anything yep (laughs) all right well love you love you love you bye 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 Bye. oh that was a good (laughs) season of the bitch